Thank you. Thank you, guys. I also want to say happy birthday to our bass player. I just found out it's his birthday, and he's way older than me, so happy birthday to Jay. There we go. All right. Now, I have been gone for three weeks. Some of you that just started coming to the church three weeks ago, you're like, who is this guy? Um, I'm actually the senior pastor here. I usually am the one teaching here, and I'm glad to be back, excited to be back here with you, and very thankful to the leadership of the church. I, I'll take a week here, and I'll take a week there. That's kind of a normal rhythm, but the church uh, gave me the uh, opportunity to kind of bundle three weeks all together. So I've been kind of in a blackout here for a while, uh, which is been good in some ways and hard in other ways. Missed you guys, but very thankful for the depth of leadership that God has given us here at Grace Bible Church, where I can be gone for three weeks and really not worry about things. Uh, we've, the church was in good hands. I want to thank uh, Mari for preaching last week and thank Stephen Watson for preaching the two weeks before. And just thanks to all the leaders that are uh, on a daily basis caring for people and encouraging people in their relationship with Christ. Um, that is one of the great strengths of this church. And so I'm thankful for that. And excited to be back with you guys. We're uh, finishing our series in 1 John today that we've been calling Certainty. So if you have a Bible, if you'll open it to 1 John. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles under the chairs there. You could flip open to page 1023 and the black Bibles that you'll find under the chairs. Um, We're finishing it up uh, kind of the last half of chapter 5 today as we've looked at the, the theme of certainty, what John does again and again is he kind of pushes and pulls and tests our faith. And what he's wanting us to understand is that we can have a real uh, certainty, a real confidence in Jesus, in the real Jesus, and that as the artwork shows, that's going to work its way out in the way that we think, head. It's going to work its way out in our affections, how we feel, what we love. It's going to work its way out in what we do hands. And so we've got the head, heart, and hands there to kind of help you to understand and remind us of the multidimensional certainty that we have in Jesus. You can't just say stuff about Jesus uh, and not live differently, right? You can't just feel stuff about Jesus but not have truth. Um, All these things have to go together. And the historic Christian faith is one that says you have to uh, believe the right things about Jesus. You have to feel the right things towards other people. You have to practice the right things in what you do. And all that hangs together. It's a coherent, certain faith. We're going to read verses 13 through 21 today to kind of wrap up our time. And what we're calling it is certainty in Jesus. Certainty in Jesus. This final look, we have kind of a summary verse in verse 13, and then we have another summary verse at the very end, the last verse. Um, The very last verse of the book seems a little oblique. It doesn't seem as much like a summary verse, but it is also, I believe, a good summary verse for the whole book. And verse 13 is as well. So if you'll follow me, we'll be in 1 John 5, verses 13 through 21. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So great summary there. He's writing this so we can know, so we can have certainty of our eternal life in Jesus. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. 
All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray for us and we'll try to unpack what this means. Study it together this morning. God, we, we ask for your help. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would explain to us your word, that your spirit would uh, make it make sense, that you would give us that understanding in Jesus. God, we pray that you would help us to live in line with what we receive from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we started the series and we started talking about the theme of certainty and these, these tests that John gives us in First John, I brought up this uh, story, this remembrance I had from when my wife and I were in seminary, there was a playground where we lived. And our kids were toddlers, and they would play on the playground at toddler speed, right? You know, toddling around. But there were bigger kids, they were big boys, and my wife would get frustrated with the big boys because these bigger boys, like six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, uh, they would seem to want to break everything on the playground, right? Have you ever noticed that, ladies? For some reason, boys at this certain age just want to destroy things. Sociologists sometimes refer to this as the utility of the male, okay? What this means, ladies, to give you a little insight, is that men, boys, are, are bent towards testing things structurally. That doesn't mean that women don't do this or that girls can't do it. It's just a bent, right? It's just a leaning and so more often than not, you'll see little boys breaking things because uh, they're not doing it just to be evil and destructive, right? Moms, you need to be encouraged. Sometimes you get frustrated. You think they're just trying to destroy everything. They, they really want to understand how things work. They want to test the certainty of the materials. They, they want to see the, the limits and the bounds of things. And so we would observe this on the playground. The older boys would uh, not just play on the playhouse or in the playhouse, but they would turn it over on its side and jump up and down on it, right, and try to rip the roof off of it. And I would encourage my wife, like, well, yeah, sometimes they're just being bad, but sometimes they're testing it. They're, they're trying to understand the certainty of how this thing works. And John is doing that to us in the letter of 1 John. So if you've been reading along with us this summer, you may have felt at times like John has flipped you over and jumped up and down on you, right? And that's kind of the analogy there, that he's, he's testing your faith. He's poking and prodding and pushing and pulling, trying to understand and trying to help you understand if, if you have a certain faith in Jesus. And I know that can feel threatening and that can feel frustrating, but I want to encourage you that John is doing this because he's a pastor. We're reading this because I'm a pastor. That means a shepherd. We're, we're wanting to feed you in Jesus. We're wanting to bring you to the one that really is your true food, the one that really can help you. So this is done out of love. It may seem threatening, but this pushing and prodding and testing of your faith is done to help you really come to peace in Jesus because Jesus really does love you. That's the point. He's trying to get you there. Don't, don't go to these false saviors, these other idols, but come to Jesus because Jesus loves you. He's going to care for you. You can grow in him. And so that's why John keeps coming back to this again and again, testing the certainty of your faith pushing, prodding, poking, trying to press you more into Jesus. 
that the first thing that John really hits on here is the certainty of our relationship, the relational connection that we have to God because of Jesus, the intimacy that we can have with him. And we see that in the first verse in verse, uh, in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to be certain of that eternal life that you have in God, that connection that you have. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We have a confidence in being able to approach God knowing we have a relationship with us, knowing that he hears us, that he sees us, that he's paying attention to us. Uh, You may have been taught in your religious upbringing that it's presumptuous to have a certainty about your relationship with God. John Stott talks about this uh, in a quote. He says, If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, but also that we should know, we should know that's part of his purpose, then presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. So some of you might feel like, well, it's presumptuous to just be certain that I have a restored relationship with God. That's presumptuous, right? That's assuming too much. What John is saying is if you're not assuming that he's trustworthy, you're being presumptuous about yourself. You're being presumptuous about your own sin. But we should trust him. We should take him at his word. He says you can be certain. John says that's why I've written this stuff, so you can be certain, so you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have this restored relationship with God. And so he says again in verse 14, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we see this example with Abraham in the Old Testament, right? Abraham, father of the faithful, we're told that he was a friend of God. Moses, Moses is pretty famous, right? He's an important guy in the Old Testament. He saw God, he talked to God face to face, right? He would see God and then he'd have to be veiled because after being face to face with God, his face would glow and it would freak people out, right? So he had to cover it. And John is saying here, we, we can have that kind of closeness with God. We can have this intimate relationship with him. We can know him. He hears us. We can be promised of that. Often our children exhibit this kind of boldness with us. If you have children, your, your kids have probably done this before, where they grab your face and force you to look at them. Have you ever had that happen? Or maybe if you don't have kids, have you ever seen a kid do that, Right. Daddy is doing important things and looking the other way, and kid grabs the face and says, look at me, right? That's a classic at the pool, you know, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me. That's, they just say that over and over again. Kids love for you to watch them at the pool. I have a picture here of a little kid grabbing hold of daddy's face. So our kids kind of remind us of that. They remind us of that presumptuousness that we can have when we have a real relationship with someone, that intimacy. John's saying we have that kind of relationship with the Father. We know he hears us. It's even better than the little kid with the daddy here on earth, right? Because the little kid knows that daddy wants to hear but gets distracted. So little kid has to grab hold of daddy to get daddy's attention. We don't have to do that with Heavenly Father. He gives us his attention. He hears us, he says. So we can have this confidence in approaching him. We have this restored relationship The word that John used earlier in the book that we talked about a lot earlier in the series was propitiation, which is kind of a fancy word used in the religions of the first century that means God is happy with you. 
Because the sacrifice of Jesus, God is happy with you. He's delighted with you. He loves you. So we can have a confidence in that relationship. We can have a certainty in that relationship. And so he goes on to say in verse 15, it gets a little confusing here. Look at verse 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So a lot of times people would say, therefore God must and does answer every prayer. Um, I would say he does answer every prayer. He just doesn't always answer it exactly the way we first envisioned him answering it. Does that make sense? And so, again, carefully look at what it says. It doesn't say, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that he says yes to every request. It doesn't say we know that he gives us uh, the happiest of all answers to every request, right? I mean, he, he says, he, he leaves it kind of vague. The way John words it uh, is vague. It comes out a little vague in the uh, English because it's vague in the Greek. It says, we have the requests that we've asked of him. We still have the requests, right? He's not saying we have the answers. I mean, he's kind of he's leaving it kind of vague. What he's, what he's trying to imply is that he's got us. We know that he's heard us. We know that we have him. We have his attention we have his face. He's smiling on us. He loves us. We know that he hears us. Again, what it says there in verse 14. So I'll read 14 and 15 together. This is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's what we know. He hears us. We can bank on it. And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests that we've asked of him. We've got it. It's all right. I mean, maybe he's going to say no. Maybe he's going to say yes. Maybe he's going to say later. We, we know we've got it. it. It's going to be okay. He hears us. The God of the universe. He's holding the worlds together. He hears us. It's going to be okay. And so what that should translate into is that we actually talk to him. That, that's what that should look like. We should then actually talk to him. We should actually bring our requests to him. We should actually talk to him. And what I want to confess to you is that sometimes, uh, as someone who is a student, right, um, one, of, one of my gifts is teaching, and so what that translates into my own kind of spiritual disciplines is that I lean more towards reading and studying than I do towards prayer. Um, and a great danger that you can have if you're a Bible student is you can study so much about God and listen to him through his word, which is good, but not actually talk to him. And I, I really want to challenge you to, to make sure you actually talk to him. Because if you're not talking to him, you're showing a severe misunderstanding of his word. And so, again, I confess that as someone who, who leans that way myself. That oftentimes I study, but don't pray to God. I don't bring my requests to him. I don't see him as someone who hears me. And the text says he hears us. So we should have a confidence in approaching him. We should have a certainty in our relationship with them. We, we should talk to him. And so my first challenge to you applicationally is, is pray. Talk to him. If you never talk to God, start talking to God. If you only pray at meals, start praying at other times. Start praying at stoplights. Start praying at night and in the morning. If you only pray at those set kind of short times, start setting aside more time, significant time to pray and talk to God. Start taking those next steps to pray and to bring your requests to God, to talk to him, to interact with him out of certainty of your relationship with him. We know he hears us, so, so talk to him. Don't, don't just try to study about him. 
but know him and, and talk to him and know that you, you've got his face. He, he hears you. He, he loves you. You have a restored relationship with him. Something else I would recommend is for some of you, you may just have a block. I mean, for me, as, as a studier, as a student, sometimes I've had blocks over the years where there's just, I just don't get something about prayer. And so you might need to study more to pray more. So read a good book on prayer, too, I would recommend. Uh, one is Brian Chappell's book, Praying Backwards. It's a great book on prayer. And then the other is one I've, I've recommended about 100 times this year is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Two fantastic books on prayer. But, but don't study those and then say, I'll just start praying after I've got it all figured out. No, you've got to start praying now. Study. If, if you want to learn, if you want to understand more, study. But pray too. Make sure you're praying. And another practical application I would give you for prayer is fasting. Fasting is helpful in our prayer life. And what I want to do is I want to define fasting for you. Uh, fasting doesn't mean like the most common way we think of fasting is fasting from food. It's not because food is evil that we fast, right? It's not because God wants you to be miserable that we fast. The reason we fast is because uh, these natural things that God gives us, like food, like uh, Facebook, right? That's not really natural, is it? Whatever. These, these good things that God gives us that we might need to fast from, they can be good things, right? Like relationships with people can be good. Communicating with people can be good, right? So my phone... Facebook, email, those can be tools for good for me to be relationally connected to people. But they can also possess me, right? And so sometimes fasting is good, breaking the hold that they have on me and saying, this time that I normally would have done that, I'm going to pray. And so fasting can be a tool to break the power that these things have in our life so that we can then lean into God in prayer. And so I would encourage you to see fasting as a temporary break on things that are often good things, right? Food's a good thing, but sometimes... You might skip a meal or you might skip a snack so that you can devote time to prayer so that you can be acknowledging that, that God is my true source of relationship. God is my true source of food. And so fasting can become a practice to help you be better at praying. And so fasting isn't saying whatever you fast from, you're not saying that thing's evil. You're saying I need to break its power over me temporarily so that I can devote myself more to God. And then you may come back to that thing better able to receive it as a gift from God, right? Better able to receive it and say, this is a good gift from God. Relationship's a good gift. Food's a good gift. Work is a good gift. I'm going to receive it from God as a gift, but I'm going to worship him as the giver of all good, good gifts. So fasting can be a tool to help us pray better. For me, lately, I've recognized noise. So we were gone for three weeks, came back, and I feel like I'm just kind of like thrown back into this this crazy uh, life that we live, you know, constant stuff on the phone, on the computer, noise in the car, just all the stuff. And so I've been even more aware of it, just the noisiness and the busyness of our life. And so for me, I, sometimes I have to fast from just turning the radio on so that I can pray better. I need to fast from checking my phone constantly so that I can pray better. And there's all kinds of things we can fast from uh, to be better at praying and restoring that relationship with God. The next thing I want us to look at here in the text is that we can be certain of change. There's a certainty that God is changing us, that God's doing something in our life. And so God challenges us, John challenges us here, starting in verse 16, to be certain that change is going to take place. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So this is the big idea. There's some confusing, there's a little confusing rabbit trail we'll go on here for a second. But just get the big idea. He's saying, 
We have a restored relationship with God, so talk to him. And then if you see someone struggling, pray for them and God will give them life. God is in the business of healing people. So we've looked at both boundaries as we've gone through 1 John. One boundary is denying that sin happens at all. Sin still happens. We still sin. If we confess that we sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all righteousness. But we're sinners. Don't deny that you have sin. The other extreme of that, if you take that too far, you can just go, well, we're sinners and it doesn't matter, right? And we just don't try. Well, John spent a lot of time saying, no, you shouldn't keep on sinning, right? You shouldn't keep on sinning. You should change. And so we've got to keep those boundaries together here. And we have to remember that God wants to change us. We can have certainty that he's in the change business and he's going to change us. He goes on from 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Here's the summary statement in 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And so John's kind of bouncing around with this confusing stuff. He knows you're getting a little confused. He knows you're starting to lose track a little bit. So in verse 18, he says, let me summarize here. If you're born of God, you, you can't keep on sinning. He doesn't mean you never sin again, right? Because we've already covered that in 1 John. The boundaries are, yes, we sin, but we confess it, we admit it. And the other extreme is we don't deny that we have sin at all. So we've got to have a boundary there, right? You've kind of got the kind of what I would call the, the modern liberal people that, that live in this, like, there is no sin, just follow your heart, right? That's kind of a way of thinking in our culture. It's more associated with Eastern religion. There's no such thing as sin. It's all an illusion. So that's one problem. There's another problem that we would call maybe fundamentalism. Um, that's the, the religious zealot type people. You see this among Christians as well as among uh, Muslims and other religions where they say, I'm actually righteous, I actually do right things all the time. That's another danger, right? Christians have to walk this middle ground where we understand, no, no, we're sinners, but we don't want to keep sinning. We want God to change us. We want God to change us, and we're confessing our sin to him. We're walking with him. We're praying for change to take place. Be certain that he's going to change you. And so what's this little thing he's saying here about, we'll go on the rabbit trail now, the sins that lead to death. Remember the context here. We've got false teachers who are basically denying Jesus. And so if you kind of follow this theme through the New Testament, if you were to go through and read the whole New Testament and read everything that the apostles ever, ever say about false teachers, it's kind of like one category where they're like, dude, stay away from those people. They're bad news, right? People that are offering some other salvation besides Jesus, keep your distance. They have the hardest words for those people. And here, I believe John, in context, is talking about those people, that ultimately the sin that leads to death is denying Jesus, right? If Jesus died to forgive us for all our sins, the, the only sin that's left is not trusting in him to forgive our sins. It's saying, I can for forgive my own sins, or I can do these works to forgive my sins. I don't need Jesus. And so he's saying, that's that one sin that leads to death. And, and he's saying, I'm not telling you to, to pray for that. Like, don't go chasing after these false teachers that have just blown up the church and left and caused all these problems. Leave them alone. Focus on your community. Pray for each other that God will heal you, that God will change you. So that's what John is saying. And what's interesting is he, he doesn't even say it's wrong to pray for them, right? 
He doesn't say that. Look at it here. It says, the end of verse 16, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Right? So he's not saying to not pray for it. He's just saying, I'm not saying you should pray for that. Right? He's kind of being vague. He's saying, that's not my main point here. My main point is to pray that God would change you and help you to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what I'm talking about. John's saying, this is what I'm focused on. Pray that people would change, that people would grow in Christ, that God would give them life. He's saying, those that have rejected Christ altogether, I'm, I'm not really talking about them. That's another conversation, right? Uh, don't, don't really worry about them, but focus on those that want to change, that want to grow. Pray for them. Pray for each other. Gather in community. That's what we talk about when we say you need to get in community. You need to get in a, in a group or an accountability partner where you can have coffee together and pray for each other. You can be in one of these small groups in a home and pray for each other. Pray for each other that God would give you life, that God would heal you. We have a picture here that I used before in this series of butterfly uh, coming out of its chrysalis, right? And I just want to warn you that in our culture, you're going to be encouraged again and again that if God made you a caterpillar, you should be proud of it and stay a caterpillar, right? I mean, that's really where our culture is today. As I referenced earlier, we're kind of in that place of denying that sin even exists. And so kind of there's this, this push on us to just say, whatever I'm like, whatever I desire, it's got to be good because I've always liked it, right? If I've always liked it and I've always desired it, then that must be God's will for my life. And the scriptures say, no, God, God finds us as caterpillars and he wants to change us into butterflies. He wants to transform us. And so without even labeling certain sins, right? Because we know there's some sins that our culture is doing this more with than other sins. But for, for God, they're, they're all sin. Anything less than what he wants for us is living as a caterpillar. God wants to transform us. He wants to, to change us. And so I want to challenge you with that. No matter what your sin is, don't rank it above or below other people's sins. Just recognize it's between you and God. God wants to change you. He has better things for you. He has bigger things for you. Just because you desire something now doesn't mean it's for your best. The God of the Bible says that he wants your joy even more than you do. And that if you will come to him, he'll be gracious and forgiving and he'll help you to change. He will transform you. He will make you new. And so I want to challenge you with that this morning. Don't pretend that the things you struggle with are different or better or worse than anybody else. We all struggle. We all have desires that God wants to change. And God will if you bring those to him. I just had that picture of butterfly because I thought it was cool. <laughs> Another butterfly picture. We can be certain that he wants to change us. And what I wanted to do is just to give you a picture of this culturally, since we're kind of talking about the pressure that the culture brings on us culturally. Um, God wants to change us, and he wants us to change us in every way. And so James addressed similar false teaching that John does. So when you look to the letter of James, James also talks about things like John does, where John is saying, it's not enough to just say you have this kind of faith. You actually have to feel it. You have to love people. You have to practice. You have to do the truth, not just talk about the truth. James says a lot of the same kinds of things. And James says this in James 1.26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, right? So James says, don't just yak about it. Live it out. And then now here gives the instructions of how to live it out. Verse 27 in James, James 1, 27. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's really beautiful. James gives the liberal and conservative definition of holy living, right? Liberal definition is to care for the poor and the conservative definition is to keep yourself morally pure. And James says, sorry guys, you got to do both. You got to do it all. It's not enough to just pick your 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 pet virtue, God says, this is what it looks like. It looks like actually physically helping people and it looks like remaining pure and moral in the decisions that you make and the choices that you make. And so he's going to press us again, not to remain a caterpillar, but to be challenged and to be changed and to live in a new way, to stand out. And that's kind of where he comes to at the end here at, in verse 19 we can be certain of real life. Certain of real life. Look at verse 19. He says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This word lie is a literal word for someone laying in a bed. So sometimes it's translated uh, for someone that's sick. It's often a word used for someone laying in bed sick, and so sometimes translated as languish, right? So the the idea is that uh, the whole world is like sick in bed. But we know that God's got us and he's giving us life to come out of that sickness, right? Um, think of the movie The Matrix, right? Or think of all the zombie stuff out there right now. There's all this zombie stuff in, in books and in movies and TV. I'm not really a fan of it myself, uh, but I think it illustrates something true about the world, that we are to be the ones that live true life, real life in the midst of death and destruction, Right? So I'm not recommending that you go watch stuff about people eating each other, but I want you to think of it as a symbol of how we should live. We should stand for life in a world that's all crazy and scary and falling apart. He says, again, we know we're from God. We're from God. We're separate. We're different than everybody else. And the whole world lies, languishes, sick in bed in the power of the evil one. It says in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. And his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So the whole world is sick and bad. I have a picture of a guy here having his temperature taken. He's sick in bed. And John is saying the whole world is sick in bed. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the accuser, the one who lies, who brings our sins up. Jesus is the advocate who stands before the Father and makes propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the one who says, I've paid for him. I've paid for her. She belongs to me. He's the one that helps the Father to be pleased with us so that he's happy with us to restore that relationship. So through Jesus, we're able to get out of that sickbed and start living real life. Martin Luther is credited with saying that if it was the end of the world, he would plant a tree. Y'all ever heard that quote before? Anybody? I don't think Martin Luther actually said it, but I tried to research it to like find where he said it. You know, it's, sometimes what happens is preachers repeat each other again and again and again, and they keep saying this guy said it and that guy said it. I think it's one of those old preacher stories. But I think it's still a great example of what Luther might have said, <laughs> that, that if everything's falling apart... God calls us to live and stand for life. So I would expand it besides just planting a tree, right? I mean, the Arbor Day people would love that, but there's more to it, right? I mean, just thinking about having kids. 
If you have kids in this world, you're making a radical statement about your faith. You're saying, I believe in hope. I believe that God wants me to live for life. I believe that God wants me to bring life into this world. So in the midst of, you know, the zombies and everything falling apart and everything breaking down, you're saying, I'm going to stand for life. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to enjoy meals. I'm going to go to parties. I'm going to teach people. I'm going to help people. I'm going to help the poor. I'm going to tell other people about Jesus. I'm going to love people well. I'm going to live out real life. From the inside out, I'm going to stand for life in a world that doesn't stand for life, in a world of darkness and death and sin and brokenness. For us to wake up in the morning and just live another day of hopeful life, that's a radical statement of our faith. And I believe what John is saying is he's connecting the dots. He's saying it's not just truth up here, right? He says this in in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So the false teachers would like to use this, they would use this kind of false teaching philosophical language like we have the deeper knowledge, we have the truth, we have the real understanding. And John says, yeah, we have that in Jesus, in the God who came to earth, who lived in the mud and bled for us, who died for us on the cross. That's the true understanding. That's the real depth of understanding. It says, we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Real life comes out of that connection with Jesus Christ. We have life in him. So we should live differently. Doesn't necessarily mean you need to watch a a zombie movie or or read a book like that, but you need to live as one who lives new life, real life in the midst of death and brokenness. That's what it means to be people of faith, is, is to live it out in the face of death, in the face of brokenness, in the face of the difficulty that we all face every day, to live out this real life, helping people, loving people, encouraging others, walking faithfully with Jesus, talking to him about our problems. He concludes with verse 21 that I said is really a summary of where we've been in 1 John. He says in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you might kind of hesitate here and think, well, well, that's for the primitive people, right? I don't, I don't bow down to idols. I don't have any little statues that I worship. But what I would say, and I believe what the New Testament authors would say is that Anything you give your heart to is an idol. You might not have carved it. It might be abstract. It might be invisible. You might have given your heart and your hope to relationships. You might be in a string of serial relationships, one boyfriend, one girlfriend after another, because you've given your heart to that as your salvation. And John would say that's an idol. You've got to be certain that Jesus is your Savior. You may have given your heart to money. The the next job is going to be it. That's going to be the thing that's going to save me. Again, you might not have carved out a statue symbolizing money that you bow down to, but maybe you're living your life in such a way that you are bowing down to money as the one thing that can save you. John would say again, Jesus is the only real Savior. Don't give your heart to these other gods. A, A window into whatever idols are pulling on your heart is, is what are the things that you sweat about and worry about in the middle of the night? What are the things that make you feel most afraid? What are the things that make you feel most angry and agitated? That's just a little 
psychological window into those are the things that are luring your heart. The song that we sang today was, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus. That, that should be true. It's not always true, is it? That should be true, but it's not always true. We should sing only Jesus. He should be the one that we run to. He should be the one that we hope in. So John closes the whole thing and says, keep yourselves from idols. Trust Jesus. He's the one Savior that can fully save you, that can give you life, that can help you live this full life for others. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you gave us your son, Jesus. Thank you that you are pleased with us, that you like us, that we have a restored relationship with you because of what Jesus has done. And God, I pray that you'd help us to live that out in faith in such a way that we transform our communities and our neighborhoods because we live differently, because we're a people that have hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.